Hey, before we get started, I just wanted to jump in and apologize. As you'll soon hear, this was actually our second attempt to record this episode, after the first one was sacrificed to the podcasting gods. Sadly, that sacrifice seems to have come up a little bit short, so you may still notice some audio jankiness, and we also lost the last couple minutes of our conversation. While I can't capture the nuance of that, I'll say that one takeaway from it is that you should check out Seamus Heaney's audiobook of his translation of Beowulf, which Elsa strongly recommends. Also, you can find Elsa online as Snarkbat in all the internet places. Again, I'm really sorry about the degraded audio quality, and know that I really appreciate each and every one of you for listening. Warning. This episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bismiecks. Listeners, today I'm very excited to introduce my guest. Elsa Hunasan is an author, editor, disability rights activist, and all-around general amazing person. Elsa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it it's one of those things sometimes there's just a problem with the podcast audio and we have to redo it. And it's honestly, I'm never sad when I have to re-record an episode like we're doing right now, because it's just like more good conversation. So uh, happy for round two. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that this will be just as an interesting of a conversation as the last one we had. <laughs> if not better. So, uh, Elsa, you're going to be reading to us out of The Live Long Night, is that correct? That is correct. And is there anything that we need to know about before we go into this? So, this is a book that I wrote in 2016, 2017, um, and it is about Tara O'Deal, who is a blind woman who can hear the dead. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to sort of play with the trope of blind people being able to see ghosts and instead of letting her see things because she's blind I was like well why don't we just have her hear them and then to make things more interesting let's cause a supernatural apocalypse in New York City that causes every single ghost in the city to be free roaming and also have the ability to say possess people um, <laughs> so she can hear what's wrong mm -hmm. and she's one of the few people who can so it's about how she becomes sort of the, the person who can help people escape and can help people be safe in a New York that is Fantastic. profoundly unsafe. Yes, absolutely. And this comes from early on in the book. Uh, there are no ghosties in this section, but there are other things. Gripping my cane a bit tighter in my right hand, I scan the floor of the subway with it and feel my cane gently bump off the knee-high boot of a woman, I assume, sitting in the disability seats. Well, okay, I can stand. 
It's only an hour. I'm a grown-up New York girl. I reach up with my left hand and grasp hold of the cold metal bar above my head. We haven't gone more than a stop before something is wrong. It's always something with the MTA. This time there's an injured passenger in another car, or so the soft announcer voice says over the intercom. Franklin Avenue, fortunately, has another route for me to take. It's not going to be so bad. The whole point is that I'll get there, right? Stepping onto the platform, I switch over to the 5 train, also packed. Maybe when everyone gets off at Union Square or Grand Central, I'll be able to sit down. I've got 13 stops until 125th Street, and then I'll either walk or take a crosstown bus to get to Columbia University. I could transfer over to the L at 14th Street, but frankly, the L's a mess, and I don't want to deal with all the stairs just to transfer to the one train, and that's another hour once I'm even in the city, if I'm lucky. My commute isn't ideal. Most students live up in Morningside Heights, but I live where I know the lay of the land, like my own skin. I'm able to tell when we get to my stop by how many people get off the train anyway, so instead of counting stops, I'm going over the things I have prepared and studied for my exam. I've already passed my state exams. This is the last moment of my degree. Yes, I'm a blind teacher. My plan for classroom management includes the train takes a sharp turn to the left, screeching to a stop at what has to be Brooklyn Bridge. Two stops left. The train jerks to a start again, hightailing it for Union Square. My blindness is a defining part of who I am, but the way I stand in a classroom is the same way I do in the city, with confidence. My world isn't dark. I've never known how to see. There is no blackness, no fear of the lack of seeing. A strong community ethic instilled in my students from the beginning, I choose to ask students to work with me rather than against me. And then, from the front of the train, I hear someone swearing. Sounds like the lights have gone off. Not a problem for me. A few people on the train joke about the MTA being run by crazed gremlins, and the tenor of the car goes back to normal. I've spent all my credit hours working with students like myself, students who are living in a world not built for them. At least this train car doesn't smell like pee. The two train I took to Atlantic had smelled like drying pee, and that's never pleasant, especially when I have no idea where the puddle is until it's far too late. Down at the far end of the train car, someone is banging on the conductor's door. It's probably stuck. Usually people are in and out of those with impunity, risking their lives to hit one more train car to panhandle to a few more travelers, or to escape a train car with an even worse smell than this one. I've become nearly immune to the sense of the subway, not because I don't smell the things, but because I've trained myself not to smell when I'm down here. Breathing through my mouth is a survival skill. (laughs) The train picks up speed and the other passengers are getting restless. A woman close to me is whispering to her whimpering daughter that the conductor knows what he's doing and that we're all going to be okay. But mommy, the girl's voice comes from my right below. Good, she has a seat. She sounds about six or so. What are those bright sparks? They look like big sparklers. The screech of the train tells me that she's talking about the rails sparking. Not good. At the other end of the train car for me, the woman who was talking about the lights has gotten louder, her words rising to a fever pitch. Unlike the normal rantings of a subway doomsday prophet, her words are chilling because I believe them. Is the conductor drunk or high? She screams, banging her fists on the outer door. Turn the fucking lights back on. The car train tips, reeling on one side of its wheels for a moment before slamming back onto both sides of the track. Everyone in the car feels that in their bones, me included. 
My jaw grinds on impact. Mommy! The little girl screams and is shushed by half the train car. Her mother begins humming a lullaby in an attempt to calm her daughter. Fuck. No lights. No train. The train being unreliable. Do we have any power? I focus. The gravity on the train has shifted. My feet are no longer steadily planted, but the floor rocks back and forth like a surfboard on an uneven water. Not like the easy balanced movement of a train being propelled safely, but a speeding train barely controlled by the driver. My ability to stay upright became infinitely more difficult. The train skids and screams forward with entropy alone. As the train careens to a halt, we all lurch forward. The tendons in my left arm wrench and the car erupts in chaos. My train lost power. My train lost fucking power. How am I going to get to school now? That is still chilling, and I love it. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, there are so many, like, details in that that speak directly to my heart as, uh, you know, an East Coast City boy. Uh, Although I've never spent much time in, in New York City, like, I definitely know... The smells of public transit in Philadelphia, um, the stinky garbage city of my heart, and uh, also spent time working in waste management. So, you know, the whole breathing through your mouth as a survival mechanism, just right to my heart. Yeah, it's and it's one of those things that I think New Yorkers especially recognize, because sometimes even not just the subway, but the, the city itself can have these really unpleasant smells. Like in mm-hmm. July, when it's super hot and people have just been peeing on the sidewalk, it's bad. Yeah, yeah one, of, uh, one of the times that I visited Philadelphia recently, I had just gotten off the plane and the jetway smelled like hot garbage juice and within like 30 seconds of getting off the plane, I had gotten something like some little speck in my eye that stayed there for the rest of the week it felt like and I was just like oh yeah yeah I'm home yep welcome home <laughs> welcome home it's terrible here you still love it though for some reason there's reasons I left and also <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um I was particularly excited for you to be reading an excerpt out of this book because I remember it was uh, something that you talked about on a panel called Stop Killing Us at the San Jose Worldcon, uh, and talking about uh, the the focus of the panel was on uh, not just doing horrible things to disabled people all the time in fiction. Uh, so I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, but particularly uh, because... You know, we have this this trope that you're all too familiar with already of bury your gaze, but you actually coined a term for that same phenomenon happening to disabled people in fiction. I did. So I, I coined the term trunking on uh, Twitter, which is specifically referring to Mad-Eye Moody in the Harry Potter books, because... If you think about it, Mad-Eye Moody is portrayed as a disabled character who has, you know, 
a leadership position and he makes a lot of difference in people's lives, but then it turns out that actually he was the evil person all along and the real Mad-Eye Moody has been locked in a trunk for the entire school year. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty fucked up. Yeah. Um, and we see it in other books. Uh, one of the other books that's come out very recently that's been quite popular has been Gideon the Ninth, which also includes basically a disabled character who is a vessel for evil. I don't want to spoil anything, mm-hmm. but that's a fairly common trope, is to basically use a disabled body in order to disguise something evil or dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that sort of that extends to even talking about blind characters in other genres, like the blind character is always the one who has spooky eyes and they can see ghosts or they're seers. Mm-hmm. And that trope doesn't feel empowering because they're mm-hmm. never they're never portrayed as like being the good guy or they're never portrayed as being like helpful or wanting to be part of the community. It's always like the distant creepy seer who everyone is a little bit creeped out by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking about like movies the only movie I can think of with even like close to a a like positive portrayal of a blind character and, you know, a character who doesn't have too many terrible things happen to them is uh, the Book of Eli, which, you know, spoilers for the Book of Eli, a 15-year-old movie, but uh, even there, like, his his blindness is always treated as very much an othering, even though the his blindness is, like, the big reveal at the end. Yeah, well, and um, I think it's interesting... I actually, The Book of Eli is one of the books I haven't watched, and I've watched most movies <laughs> that deal with blindness. Um, research for being seen was watching a lot of things that made me very angry. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I'm not entirely sure why The Book of Eli didn't make it on my watch list, except that it dealt with a man, and a lot of my work has been focused on women and queer mm. people, and how their experience of disability gets sort of treated because um i do think that there's a gender component to how we look at disability in media Mm-hmm. yeah and i i will say for the book of eli that it is very much um sort of pattern on daredevil except for you know mm-hmm. the blindness being the big reveal rather than a central part of the character but it is like you know he has basically superhuman hearing like he doesn't have yeah daredevil's red sight but he has you know he's preternaturally good at like shooting bad guys and things like that because he can just hear them super well and you know right. um and and like i know that that's you know that's something that that the live long night kind of uh is in conversation with in a way like you mentioned that it's she can hear ghosts. She can't see ghosts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Tara can hear them. And one of the things that's interesting is she's always been able to hear them. Like, mm-hmm. this this isn't some special sneaky power. It's just she always has been able to hear ghosts. It's something that is about her. And so one of the ways that I sort of illustrate that is that she, in certain parts of the book, actually uses the ghosts, like, 
anchor locations for Mm -hmm. how she navigates the city, which really fucks her over when the ghosts are able to move. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because she's like, I'm sorry, you're supposed to be on the Lower East Side, and you are now up in Morningside (laughs) Heights. Like, what is going on? So there's this there's this shift, I guess, for her where she stops being able to use this this adaptive aid that is relying on her supernatural ability to navigate mm-hmm. her city. Um, but what I thought was interesting about that too is that it, it takes away sort of the idea of oh well blind people can see because we have mm-hmm. We culturally really have a hard time with um, binaries. Mm -hmm. And so, like, the assumption is that all blind people are the same. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that, like, even even as a fully blind character who, who falls into sort of the traditional visual model... She needed to adapt to the world mm-hmm. in her own way, and uh, giving her the ability to hear the dead kind of did some of that for me. Yeah, I I really like the idea of of ghosts as sort of an adaptive aid or an, a, a navigational waypoint. Um, that's really just like you know, it's something that is really neat, and I don't think that a sighted person would necessarily have even thought of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I guess if you're not thinking about what things sound like in the world that you live in, like, but she, one of her coping mechanisms, she's like, oh, I know where I'm going because I can hear Peter Stuyvesant's peg leg in the background. Mm-hmm. And that's how I know I'm over by this specific church because he basically takes, and that's actually an urban legend, like, that's a, that's a ghost story in New York City is that Peter Stuyvesant haunts this specific church. And you can hear him walking around because he had a wooden leg. That's awesome. I love that. Um, My apologies for the large truck. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. So the... uh, One of of the other things in The Live Long Night and, you know, something that uh, we talk about also in, like, media with queer people in it is like you know sometimes you have to make something bad happen to one of your marginalized characters because because the story demands it but what well, it's, it's it interesting becomes a little less difficult if you have more yeah well it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the hardest things about writing fiction about disability is that I have mm-hmm. to write ableism into my work. Like, yeah. you can't tell a story about disability without ableism unless if you are writing in a fantasy world where ableism doesn't exist. And I, I don't just mean mm-hmm. a fantasy world like with, you know, dragons and unicorns. I mean, like, if you're writing a contemporary story and there's no ableism, I call that fantasy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Yeah, for sure. I do have to put my characters in really sometimes dangerous uh, situations, and Tara definitely experiences violence by people who are exploiting her on inability to see them. And there, <clears throat> that was really tough to write, but it was really important because I could actually show her fighting back, I could show her surviving. And I think that that's important 
too. Um, sometimes bad things happen to good people, and they actually happen to good people an awful lot in the real world. And so giving mm -hmm. people the opportunity to see disabled people actually, like, deal with that, I think is a bonus. Even if it's mm -hmm. hard to write, even if you have to include ableism in your work, I think it's actually uh, validating to see disabled people problem-solve and survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, like, you know, that that is, like, as an abled person, that makes sense to me, like, in sort of an abstract way, but it also, like, as a queer person, makes sense to me in, like, a much more concrete way of, like, you know, the, in, in the last decade we've seen so much more queer representation in media and more positive queer representation in media um which you know in in neither case is it perfect by any means or you know has any sort of like real parody to mainstream abled cis white you know everything normative patriarchal media uh but getting to read books or watch movies or whatever that are about queer characters makes it feel better and, like, makes it feel validating when bad things happen to them. Because you can say, like, yeah, that is... This isn't just, like, punishing the different character. This is, you know... I see something of myself in them and I get to, like, feel validated there. So that's a really... um that's really cool to have that. It is. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, it happens with queer characters, too. And mm -hmm. I think uh, we're seeing some... We're seeing some of that in a lot of fiction written by marginalized authors. Like, we're getting to see people mm -hmm. sort of say, well, this is how I solve the problems of being in the body that I live in. Yeah. So... You had, you've already mentioned uh, being seen sort of tangentially uh, in mentioning that you watched a lot of, consumed a lot of media to uh, inform this book, but uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about being seen, one deafblind woman's fight to end ableism. It's a funny book. I, I don't mean funny haha. I mean, it's just, it's an odd book to talk about. Um... Mm -hmm. You know, you, you write a memoir of 36 and you kind of have to accept where the chips fall when it comes to what you've said about people and how they feel about it, because everybody's still alive. Uh, mm -hmm. do, do not recommend writing a memoir at 36 unless if you're really ready for it. Um, right. But I wanted to talk about what the real impact of our media is on disabled people who are living today. And mm -hmm. the only way to do that is to compare and contrast. And so what I do is mm -hmm. I literally take examples from media and then I'm, I, I have them talk to my own lived experience and I interweave cultural criticism and memoir is more or less how it works. Mm -hmm. I think, I think it works. <laughs> <laughs> I think I made it work. Um, but it's, it's I mean, definitely you've been stacking like, up the starred reviews, so... Yeah, apparently Booklist and Kirkus both feel like it worked. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I I think one of the things that that helped is knowing that because non-disabled people so often are getting their introduction to disabled bodies through media, it's mm-hmm. a really easy through line to say, okay, so if you've been seeing this representation of blindness for decades, this is what you think it is. And mm-hmm. this is what it's actually like to live in a body like that. So one of the sections that I do talk about is I talk about the horror genre. Um, mm-hmm. And that's sort of how I break it down. And I use a bunch of different genres per chapter, and I kind of take them one at a time, tear them to pieces, and then don't put them back together because not my job. <laughs> uh, so in the horror chapter, I talk about how in horror movies, it's always somebody you don't know. Like in the movie Hush, it's a stranger breaking into a deaf woman's house. In uh, A Quiet Place, it's alien monsters. In in Darkness, it's somebody who who is bad to the main character's mother, but it's not actually her person. And the, the line the line that I use in the book is uh, the subtitle of that chapter is the call is coming from inside the house because it's actually not stranger danger. It is it is the people who know you and love and are supposed to love you. Uh, disabled people experience a high level of domestic violence. They experience a high level high level of character caregiver violence. And so I talk about how like it's actually not what what's real. Horror is missing the point. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, it's it's interesting because I think that one of the like horror is one of the more mainstream genres in terms of like having any sort of representation for disabled characters. Mm-hmm. And in horror, you are either a monster or you're a victim. There is no in-between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, like, you know, same thing for queer rap. Like, horror has, has historically had a lot of queer rap, and it's almost always either queers being victimized or queers being, being the monsters. Mm-hmm. In uh, the TV show that was based on the Scream film franchise, uh, mm-hmm. they, they made a, a choice. <laughs> and the, the, <laughs> the choice was that the reason why everybody's getting murdered is because a disabled kid doesn't can't get a date to the prom. Oh, great. I have no regrets for spoilers here, by the way, because like everything uh, I'm talking uh, about is terrible media that you should not be giving your money to. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, spoiler warning for the whole rest of the episode, we will spoil more things, I'm almost certain. That's basically my job. I'm the disability activist (laughs) Killjoy. I spoil things for fun, profit, and education. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So you uh, you have written fiction, you have written nonfiction, you have a memoir coming out, and, uh... I'd really love to hear some of your perspective on how you approach memoir and nonfiction as opposed to how you approach fiction. 
So I write fiction very linearly. Like, I, I, I mm -hmm. need to tell the story in the order of the things as they happen because everything interlocks. And, like, the mm -hmm. choices that... Yeah. The choices that you make inform the next choice that you make, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's a, a good example of that is, like, if, if you're writing noir, you have to make sure that each completely subtle, normal choice leads to <laughs> darker choices that ultimately lead you to kill somebody. And that's just how my brain works. It needs to have that trajectory in order to tell a story in a way that it makes sense outside of my brain. Mm-hmm. Nonfiction does not work like that for me. <laughs> um, Being Seen was written in chunks. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I basically had to play with the entire book like a jigsaw puzzle until it fit right. Mm -hmm. And then I had to like go in and basically write um, connective tissue at the end of each chapter to link it to the next one so that it actually made sense. Um, but mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time with my editor and with my, my crit partners um, basically playing like so if it fits here where does this go yeah i imagine like that would be quite a challenge when you're putting together something that is you know as interlinked uh and in you know for a book that is equal parts memoir and critique to be able to like get your topics introduced in an order where you like you know, I can I can easily imagine like having a draft where you know you really have to be like, oh, but I'm talking about this thing, but I'm not explaining it until this chapter, like you know, a hundred pages later. But if I move that forward, then how do I, you know, that sort yeah. Of thing. So it was a, the 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 ones that were the most difficult to place was I had to figure out. Basically, I knew, I knew that all of the like, this is what ableism looks like. <clears throat> this is this is what the tropes look like. Chapters kind of went at the beginning. Um, the tropes chapter is really fun, by the way, because I actually go and do a bunch of the things that happen in movies, and there nice. are some consequences for my actions. I'll put it that way. Uh, <laughs> And, um, but so I knew all of that kind of had to go at the beginning, but then it was like, okay, so what comes first? Like, do I talk about gender before I need mm -hmm. to talk about gender before I talk about the romance genre? I need to talk about gender before I talk about the motherhood chapter, but does the medical chapter come before or after all of that? And I realized like, well, the motherhood chapter kind of leads into the medicalization chapter. So like those two need to kind of go together. Mm -hmm the horror and romance chapters needed to go next to each other because they have a lot in common about how they view disabled bodies. And frankly, mm -hmm. most romance that has disabled people in it is kind of horrifying for us, even if it doesn't mm. look that way to non-disabled people. So, like, I kind of had to see what logically fit together and how to tell the story in a way that would sort of help people learn. Mm-hmm. That that makes a whole lot of sense it it's also like it's interesting again to like put the horror and romance chapters next to each other because you know this isn't an original thought for me but uh it feels like and there's been a lot of of words written about how horror and romance are really like linked together in a lot of ways around you know Especially around just 
being shat on in the general, like, literary milieu because they are both extremely visceral genres. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting to, to like, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading the book and finding out, like, how, how those genres link together in terms of disability rep and in terms of, of like, that, that horrific or, or like, monstrousness. Well, I mean, it's, it's tricky because, like, so often disabled people are paired with monsters. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, uh, for those of you who haven't read my piece on the shape of water, I belong where the people are. Um, mm-hmm. I specifically talk about the fact that, like, you can only find love if you are with a monster. And in some cases, that's a literal monster, like the fish monster. But in, in mm-hmm. some cases, it's like children of a lesser god, where the main character gets together with an abusive man. And that's another kind mm-hmm. of monster. And so it's like, we're always being paired with monstrosity or or with um, unkindness. And when there isn't an unkindness match, it's something like Jojo Moya's Me Before You, in which case mm-hmm. the only good dead the only good disabled person is a dead one. Like right. fall in love with me, but we're never gonna have sex. And I, when I die by my own choice, you're going to get all of my money. That's not a romance novel, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. being shelved as one. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that is that is you know. I mean it it's it's in line with like the whole uh fridging man pain you know, bearing a queer's trunking like all of that is all all kind of interlinked there. Yep. Um uh, and and like all really like comes back to you know, in, in some ways, all comes back to, like, the monstrousness of society. Yeah. That, like, you know, we, we live in this society that is uh, white supremacist and patriarchal and, you know, cis-heteronormative and yep. doesn't, doesn't allow space and able and doesn't allow space for anything that does not conform to that. Yeah. I I think I think it's also the fact that um in our society we've kind of gotten to this point where I wouldn't say that being queer is accepted. There's certain mm-hmm. kinds of queer that are accepted like mainstream society is at this point pretty comfortable with pictures of lesbian brides in white dresses and mm-hmm. gay men in suits being happy together. Like there's sort of a mainstream queerness that has become I think fairly widely acceptable, but people mm-hmm. are still really uncomfortable with disabled people getting married. People are still really uncomfortable specifically with disabled people being in relationships with non-disabled people, especially when mm-hmm. it's a visible disability. Um, and that discomfort comes across in fiction, it comes across in media, it comes across in, in just daily life. Um, Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's part of the problem is that we still don't have a cultural comfort with the idea of disabled people experiencing pleasure or love. Yeah, and that I I imagine that that made writing the romance chapter kind of tricky in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I definitely had this 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 debate. I was like, I, I need to write about the romance genre. I need to make sure people understand why it's so toxic for disabled people. But also, in every single chapter, I talk about my own life. Which mm-hmm. means I have to talk about my sex life in a book that's being published by Simon and fucking Schuster. Like... Right. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> So that was a real tricky space for me, and I ultimately made the decision that it was more important to make myself uncomfortable in order mm-hmm. to be sure that people got to be validated, right? Like, mm-hmm. part of the job of this book is validating that deaf, deaf-blind women and deaf women and blind women have sexuality and have sexual experiences. and. Part of that job is also to educate non-disabled people and make them go, oh, wow, that just happened. I now have to sit with my feelings about it. Yeah. And, but, you know, I imagine for the uh, disabled readers of any stripe, but especially the deaf, blind, or deaf, blind readers of, of your book, like, that having that representation in there would be really powerful for them. Mm-hmm. And that's why I leaned on the side of being uncomfortable, me being uncomfortable, because mm-hmm. I didn't want to make people feel like I wasn't being honest. And mm-hmm. that honesty is part of what makes memoir work. There's a certain amount of discomfort that you end up needing to be in in order to tell your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, like, memoir is such an interesting genre to me. I haven't actively written anything in that space in, like, a decade. Mm -hmm. I took classes on memoir in both high school and college, uh, and, like, creative nonfiction in general. But it's so, you know, it's so interesting to me because, like, memoir is so different you know, I, I think a lot of people don't understand that memoir is a very different space than autobiography. Like, autobiography is, here are the facts, and, you know, on this day I woke up at this time and had toast, but had forgotten to refill the butter dish or whatever. Right, and memoir is more like... There's a section in the book where I talk about what it's like to acquire language. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it gets into the weird, metaf- almost metaphysical, yeah, like, weird metaphysical bits of being human that I think autobiography mm-hmm. can't touch because it needs to be more factual. Right. Yeah, there's there's, uh, there's an idea in, in the, like, creative nonfiction space of, like, um, the only word I can think of it, think of for it right now is truthiness. I know there's a, like, more... Uh, uh, verisimilitude. Like, the the important part is that it feels true, and there's a certain amount of, like, latitude that you get to uh, use when writing memoir, when writing these creative pieces. Well, I mean, my, my very best friend in the whole world read the book, and she she came over for cocktails, and we were chatting, and she's like, it's so interesting because I remember the other pieces 
and what was happening in these moments in the book. And I know I'm one of the very few people who will actually be able to see, oh, I see what you left out. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, because I had to make, and this is such a weird sentence to say, I had to figure out what fit the narrative. (laughs) Like, Uh when you start having to decide what, what parts of your life help you tell a story, that's mm-hmm. part of what makes it memoir and not autobiography. Because in autobiography, yeah. you don't get to pick and choose what you tell people. Yeah. Yeah, and and you also, like, part of, part of that gets to be, like, a non-linearity of time. Like, we, we know that time is completely fake. If 2020 and 2021 has taught us nothing else, it's that. Yep. But, uh the like the space to jump backwards and forwards in time to draw parallels to to make a point in that way mhm um you know we're 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 talking now on September the 13th we just 2 days ago had the 20th anniversary of the 911 attacks and uh it reminded me of a piece that I wrote a decade ago um, that I have posted on my website about my experience of 9-11 because, you know, as a millennial, I have to, I am contractually obligated to write a 9-11 thing. I but... will never write a 9-11 thing. I can't do it. My my experience was uh, really intense. <laughs> Which is really I all I'm going to say about that. So... <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think it's actually interesting. That's sort of something I've been talking about a lot, sort of in the up, the run up to the release of the book, is that I actually do have things I won't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, because privacy is really precious, and mm-hmm. we we give away a lot of privacy when we write nonfiction that has to do with oh, our yeah. lives. <sighs> like we give away certain precious things that we can't get back. And mm-hmm. so deciding what stays private and what doesn't is actually a really important skill for memoirists and personal essayists to learn. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to make sure that I talk about that at any of my pre-book appearances because I think validating that I actually do have a private life and that there are some things that are not open to discussion actually feels really empowering. Yeah, it it really is. You're It is... You know, it is an exertion of control there. And yeah. in a way where, like, in in this day and age for, for anybody, like, having, being able to exert control over your life, over your narrative is so important. Yeah, with social media, we lose a lot of our narrative. Yeah, I, I definitely, like, you know, I think, I think we're all familiar to a greater or lesser lesser extent with that push and pull of like wanting to share things to you know like there there are parts of my life that I never share on social media and that's like just a very intentional decision like I will talk about my work in broad strokes because there are things from my job that I think are important to share with people when I'm you know talking about how to keep yourself safe on the internet in terms of like keeping your information safe, keeping your computer safe, that sort of stuff. But like, I don't talk about my employer. I don't 
you know, I don't talk about, I don't talk a lot about my personal life outside of, like, you know, the sort of, like, funny, shareable, not really personal things. Yeah, like, there are some, I, there's a lot that I don't talk about um, in my personal life. And I actually used to talk about it more. And I've been making that shift because I because of the book. Like, I've been making the decision that, like, this book is big enough and it's telling enough stories that need to be told that I actually need to pull back and give myself a little bit more space to breathe. Um, mm -hmm. Like, that became really clear to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're kind of talking around some of this already, but this... This weird blue police box just landed in, uh, showed up in my office here, and I'm wondering if we can step into this time machine together and go back and talk to, uh, if there are some things that you wish that younger you had known, either as a writer or just as a person, um, that would be helpful, you know, helpful for people listening to hear and helpful for yourself. I, I think I think for me it was always the permission to identify the way that I do. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of people have tried to take the word disabled away from me. I was raised by people who didn't identify me as disabled. Um, mm -hmm. I was always told, oh, you're not really blind. Uh, and that cost me in community and it cost me in adaptive aids and it also just cost me in time. Because if I had been identifying as blind from the age of 12, I could have been in a place where I was ready and able to do the work that I've been doing for the last five years a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have known more blind people and I would have known more deaf people. And I think having sort of people try to tell me who I was supposed to be because of the body that I didn't have or mm -hmm. the body that they wanted me to have really cost me in, in somewhat my writing ability because I had to do all of the processing to get to the fact that I was deafblind through my work. Mm -hmm. Like, my, my writing for the last 10 years has been on the topic of disability. And in 2010 or 2011, um, this is actually kind of funny and relevant, so I had a piece in Offbeat Bride. It was kind of my first, like, powerful disability rights piece. It was called Blind Women Get Married Too. And uh, I'm friendly with Ariel Stallings, who is the, mm -hmm. the woman who runs it. And so she was like, oh, you have a book coming out. I want to support you. I'm going to like repost your article on the page. And like, we're going to, you know, we, I'd love to have you write something new for us before the book comes out. So for Disability Week, she posted my piece about being blind and getting married and mm -hmm. somebody some very well-meaning people rolled up into the comments on facebook to be like but she identifies as deaf blind why are you only referring to her as a blind person and it's like well my identity has changed between 2011 and 2021 <laughs> imagine that uh, uh <laughs> shocking that so, but I think it's interesting because the way that people approach identity on the internet now, mm -hmm. uh, I, I people are sort of like very defensive of what people say they are, and that's great, except for the part where you have to recognize that people grow and change. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and like that is there there is, you know, a lot of capital D discourse about that um sort of on on the wider scale, you know, I see a lot of of discourse around that more with queer people, but like you know, it it's one of those things like I was using a different set of pronouns this time last year, like people get to change their identity, change how they identify, like, throughout time. Like, identity is not static, and being able to exert that control over over your identity, over how you identify, is, like, really powerful and really, like, affirming to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think people just accepting that, like, if somebody has changed their identity, maybe maybe don't call the publisher out on mm-hmm. the difference, especially if it's a 10-year-old article. Um, right. <laughs> but, but also, like, because we are now more open as a culture to mm-hmm. specifically gender identity changes... I think it's really important for people to just sort of sit back and let people tell their own story, which really gets mm-hmm. back to the advice that I would give myself, you know, hopping into the blue time box is like, don't let people take away the language that you want to use just because they're more comfortable mm-hmm. with it. Like you have to be true to who you're, you are and what your body tells you. Not mm-hmm. like non-disabled people don't live in my body. And a lot of the time, non-disabled people really want to tell me whether or not I'm deaf and blind. And sometimes uh-huh. even other deaf and blind people want to tell me whether or not I'm deaf and blind. Because my mm-hmm. deafness and my blindness are different from theirs. And it's not a competition, and you don't live inside of my body. You have no idea what I can or can't see or hear. So yeah, asking people to sort of perform their identity consistently is almost baffling. Like, mm-hmm. especially for for blindness and deafness especially, they are degenerative conditions, or at least they can be. And aging happens mm-hmm. to disabled people too. So, like, I don't know. Will my hearing get worse over the next 10 years? Probably. Will my sight get worse over the next 10 years? Don't know. Really hope not. But, like, mm-hmm. IDK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't... Don't gatekeep other people's identi- identities, and don't keep your don't gatekeep your own identity. Yeah, I think it's really both, and it's also like not assuming what's going on in somebody's body just because you live in one that's similar. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is very much like you know, in whatever in a, in whatever way people perceive you, like. That doesn't... Their perception does not necessarily line up to facts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's hitting me in the queer feels. <laughs> yeah, I feel like disability and queerness actually have a lot in common. Um, mm-hmm. And that has been my experience as a disabled queer. But also, like... I think that being raised in a queer community kind of prepared me for what it would be like to be a disabled person in ways that still sort of surprise me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, 
like, I'm just thinking about what you said a few minutes ago about, uh, like, if you had been allowed to identify yourself as, as deafblind when you were younger, like, think of all all of the friends, all of the connections you would have in those communities yeah. now that, you know, as as somebody who didn't, like, come out as queer until their 30s, like, you know, I obviously have a lot of queer friends now and, and had a bunch of queer friends because, like, we flock together even when we don't know it. Yep. But... We travel in packs like wolves. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And like wolves, we are misunderstood by science. Yep. There's, there's actually a funny, uh, there's a funny meme that I will sort of leave with people, which is that it's it's also neurodivergent people travel in packs. So if you find mm-hmm. that you, all of your friends are autistic and have ADHD, it, it might be time to get an assessment of some variety if you uh-huh. experience things like RSD weasels and forgetting what's in your fridge after 24 hours. Uh, oh, yeah. Certain memes are yeah. just yeah. true. Certain memes know exactly where you live and will come into your house at 2 a.m. Yeah. Yep. The internet is very good, but the internet is also very bad and mean. The internet is complicated. (laughs) Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, So before we get going, uh, one of the things I've started to do recently is give my guests a chance to pump up some things, uh, media of whatever form that they've been consuming that they really want other people to know about. I just watched Ready or Not last night. Have you Mm -hmm. heard about it? I have not. It is a horror movie about a family that has an initiation ritual for new members in which you have to play a game. And in this game, you basically pull a card from a magical box, and depending on what the card is, it decides what game you play on your wedding night. And the bad Mm -hmm. one is hide-and-seek. So, of course, like... She pulls the hide-and-seek card, and it becomes a game of very deadly hide-and-seek with a bride in a dress running around, Um, and it is darkly comedic, but also (laughs) it it was very validating uh, for spoiler reasons, and I really appreciated that they they landed... um, effectively a don't trust cis men plot really Mm -hmm. well because i keep wanting horror to do more of that i keep wanting it to be like yes cis men are evil and Uh it actually (laughs) happens um it's sort of similar to the invisible man but i think this one was much easier to watch because it was a lot quirkier um Mm -hmm. Like, board game empire family wants you to play hide-and-go-seek and and try to kill you. Slightly less, you know, abusive husband has an invisible man suit. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's what I watched last night. I also really enjoyed The Chair, which was Mm -hmm. complicated because it's not super accurate for academia in a lot of ways, but 
it mm-hmm. also really like deeply exemplifies what it's like to parent children in Gen Alpha. <laughs> mm. uh, so if you need some some commiseration on parenthood, I highly recommend that <laughs> show. <laughs> and uh, then I'm reading I'm rereading the Poisonwood Bible right now. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I do not talk about my partner much, but he came from an evangelical background. And so I'm rereading it because it's a book that I didn't really like. Like, I, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a book that I enjoyed. But it, because it's problematic when it comes to disability. Fabulous. Elsa, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Listeners, uh, be on the lookout for Being Seen wherever you buy fine books. And be on the lookout next month when our guests will be Rem Wigmore and Freya Marsk. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBizniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.